My sermon text this morning is a little different than what's printed in the bulletin. It's 1 Timothy 4, 1 through 5. 1 Timothy 4, 1 through 5. The title of my message is, What is a Gospel-Liberated Fellowship? I had fun with that title. What is a Gospel-Liberated Fellowship? Over the past several weeks, we've been seeing how the Apostle Paul, in his letter to Timothy, has centered his message on the faith, the basic gospel of who Jesus is and what he's done. And he's done that as a strategic, if you will, flanking maneuver to the false teachers in Ephesus where this letter is being read. The false teachers who, because of their sophistication and their various embellishments on that simple message, are causing division in the church. And instead of seeing the kingdom of God like a grammar school, if you will, they see it more like a grad school. And they're adding all kinds of subtle uh, extras to the message. And we see a great, I'm not going to be preaching on this, but I'm going to briefly expound it for you. We see a great summary of this simple faith in 1 Timothy 3, verse 16. This is really at the very heart of the book. He says in verse 14, look, I'm not going to be able to come for a while, so until I come, this is what it's all about. And that's what we get in 1 Timothy 3, uh, verse 16. Look at this. He says, He was manifested in the flesh. That is speaking of the theater of Jesus' earthly mission. He was vindicated by the Spirit. That speaks of the theater of His heavenly mission. In other words, having accomplished His earthly mission, He is, in the ascension, brought before the heavenly realms and is vindicated there, or justified fully, displayed as having completed the work seen by angels, that's the heavenly announcement, that's where the announcement is made of the, the work of Jesus, the finished work of Jesus. And then he's proclaimed in, among the nations, that's the earthly announcement, that's the mission that we're in, by the way, that's the phase that we're in right now in the history of redemption. And then it says he's believed on in the world, that's the consummation of his work at the end of the ages, and then taken up into glory where he is finally, fully, in that great regal ceremony at the end of time, seated at the right hand of God as having completely and 100% accomplished the work, he is, at the end of time, taken up into glory. That's the message. And notice that at every clause, in every phrase, we see the work of Christ, the work of Christ, the work of Christ. This is the ABCs of the faith And God help me if I ever get past that. That's what Paul's saying to Timothy. By focusing on this message, that people are actually set free from the lies that bind them, lies like their religion or their behavior, their practices, conduct, their righteousness, their moralism, their enlightenment, anything can bring them closer to God. This message frees people up from that tyranny. The only thing in my experience that can truly, really and truly quiet my conscience when the light goes out and my head hits the pillow is the free grace of Jesus Christ. And I've tried a lot of things. And if you are like me, you have experienced and you have tasted and you've seen that the Lord is good, that Jesus alone can have the power to save, to cleanse, to heal, and to liberate. 
as I mentioned earlier in the service even, being set free, being delivered, being saved is a theme that runs throughout the Bible. And one of my favorite verses along these lines is Colossians chapter 1, verse 13. He delivered us from the dominion of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved Son. Unfortunately, what happens is people who have experienced this deliverance often don't live it out. We live like we're still on the other side of the enemy lines. Even though our citizenship has been transferred, we've got an Arizona driver's license and everything, we still live and act as if we're from somewhere else. This is hard to spot sometimes, especially amongst religious conservatives like me, because we, are, we become very adept at displaying the work of redemption in some certain and specific areas, some very narrow areas. But the outworking of the implications of that sometimes take many, many, many years. So we know the power of the gospel to set us free, but it hasn't in very many ways actually set us free. So in, in our text then, in the ancient city of Ephesus, there were teachers that were pushing what I would call a high-gloss standard of behavior. It looked attractive. It even had promises of being very liberating. But this teaching, in fact, kept them imprisoned in the, in the lie of the devil that said, my sophistication and my behavior ultimately is what brings me satisfaction, what brings me peace, what quiets my conscience, what helps me in life. So the best way Paul was able to tell that they were on the wrong team is that they were adding rules to the faith. That's how he could tell. And that's why he's writing this letter. So Timothy's job was to teach this faith, to teach the gospel, and to lead the Christian family back in Ephesus, back to a liberated gospel fellowship, back to the simple message. And I think that's what God is calling this church to do as well. This series that I've entitled Lessons on Leadership for a Missional Church. God is calling us to be about the mission of the gospel in the world. That's the message that I've hit on every sermon. And we complicate that, and we frustrate that mission, and we frustrate, in a sense, his work in our lives when we add things in. Call it the Jesus and religion. Jesus and political party. Jesus and moral behavior, Jesus and anything. And you say, well, that doesn't sound quite right. And I say, that is the message of the gospel. Unconditionally, before you were ever born, with your entire life in view, Jesus died. He finished the work when he said it is finished. He finished it. And so our mission is to reflect that finished work of Christ in everything that we do as a church family in everything that we do as individual families, and to be relentless and ruthless at going through and editing our religion so that it consists A, B, C, and nothing more. So that our lives are centered on the power source of God's grace on the cross. That's the mission. And so we want leaders in the church who are passionate about that. We want lay people in the church who are passionate about that, who won't, who won't accept anything but that. We're looking for a culture in the church that, that pursues this kind of gospel-centered life 
And what happens is, is that outsiders then come in and see, oh, this is Christianity, not that other thing that I thought it was all about. So we're going to consider three points this morning about a gospel-liberated fellowship. First of all, the enemy of the gospel-liberated fellowship is error. The enemy is error. Second, the test of a gospel-liberated fellowship is truth. The test is truth. And third, the protection of a gospel-liberated fellowship is prayer. The protection is prayer. The enemy of error. One thing that struck me about 1 Timothy 3.16, which is the doctrinal heart of this book, it's an ancient Christian hymn. It's a fragment of a hymn that Paul included here in this passage to, in a sense, summarize the whole faith. One thing that struck me about it was how simple it was. How simple it was. Jesus' work in the world, he rose. That work was presented, in a sense, in the heavenly places at his ascension. That good news was proclaimed. The angels have longed to look into it. And now we're proclaiming it here until all people believe, willingly or unwillingly, until all people believe at the end of the age. That's very simple, but the enemy is error on that message. And the error is one of addition, I think. The error comes, Paul tells us, from deceitful spirits and the teachings of demons. This may sound a little bit hokey to a 21st century enlightened audience. You're thinking, I don't know about that demon stuff. But it's a reality that we need to acknowledge that there is an invisible world, there is an invisible realm, a realm that we can't see that is populated by beings. That's what we believe. And that these beings have an influence on the affairs of the visible world. Now that may sound pre-modern. It is pre-modern. But it is true. And too often we, we miss the source of our problems because we deny the existence of this realm. We either deny it intentionally, saying, I don't believe in that, or we deny it, deny it unintentionally by saying, oh, the, the problem has to lie in something that I can see. So we have to acknowledge that, first of all. But second of all, error doesn't only come from demons, does it? Look at verse 2 of our text. Through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. So if there's a source of the error, we can also point to a human source because sometimes there is a, spiritual, a direct spiritual influence on, the, on our affairs by unseen forces. And other times, and in my experience, just as common, the influence comes through people. And the people here, the false teachers, are described as those who are insecure liars. Ouch. The idea is this, or insincere liars. The idea is this, that, that they've, they've been lying so long, they no longer can tell the difference between the truth and falsehood. Have you ever found yourself in that place? I have. You tell a lie long enough, and you actually begin to believe it. So the insincerity, or what was at one point insincerity, your conscience becomes cauterized. That's actually the word that Paul uses, seared, anesthetized, deadened. It's like there's no life in this thing. 
If you have a scar, you can touch it and you can't really feel it. That's this cauterization that's talking about. The lie gets told over and over and over again to the point that you actually finally believe it. And so the enemies of the church are liars. And so it's important to remember this when, when you have conflicts in the church and difficulties in the church, that the source actually may be someone who believes he or she is telling the truth, but in fact has grown so accustomed to the lie that he or she no longer knows what the truth is. The conscience is seared. You know, I find it very hard to admit that I believed a lie. That's been one of the hardest things in my Christian life is for God to show me, Phil, that is a lie. No, it's not. I've been doing that for years. No, Phil, that is a lie. But Christians need to recognize that they can fall under the spell of a lie. They can fall under the deceit that there is something else that we need besides Jesus. And I doubt that if you're very many years in the faith, that you would readily admit that that's true of you. That's our nature, is to deny criticism when it comes. But God's word to us today is, examine yourself. Have you fallen prey to a lie? The Bible is full of references to spiritual blindness. You know this. One of my favorite stories is the man who was born blind in John 9. What's so funny about this is that the pastors, okay, the Pharisees, are saying, look, we're the people that know the truth here. You're the upright, upstart. You're the rebel. You're the guy who has to prove himself to us. And, and the man born blind says, look, I haven't been to seminary. I haven't even graduated from college. Here's what I know. I was blind and now I see. Put that in your pipe and smoke it. <laughs> and the Pharisees say, get out. You're expelled. You're out of here. How dare you talk to us like that? You see, they were so accustomed to the lie that they thought it was now their duty. It was their religious duty to exclude someone in whom the work of God was going on. And so Jesus, later on, in his very subtle way, said, look, if you knew the truth, you wouldn't be blind. He's calling them blind. But the blind people, the one who can't see, are the ones who can see. And so he really gets there, he, he twists their intellect around it, and I can just see it, it's like, He's walking on down the road, and they finally get it, you know? It's like, wait a minute, he just insulted me. <laughs> so error comes through lies, and the enemy of a gospel-liberated fellowship, just like the enemy in Jesus' day with these Pharisees and this man born blind, was the lie that somehow it wasn't as simple as all that. It just wasn't as simple. Only the gospel can offer simple freedom in Christ. And that's the basis of my next point, which is that the, the test of a gospel-liberated fellowship is the truth. Here's how you find out if a fellowship, and by the way, I need to define fellowship for you. Fellowship means shared life, common life. So a gospel-liberated fellowship, a group of people who are sharing life in the gospel, Here's how you find out if, if that really exists. When you preach the truth, is it accepted or not? 
Is it welcomed or is it rejected? That's how you tell. In this particular fellowship, the lie that they were passing around, there were two of them. The first lie, if you look in our text, is verse 3, the first part. They forbid marriage. So this first particular lie is related to sex. Interesting, isn't it, how it always comes back to sex. So they're forbidding people to get married, which relates to forbidding people to have sex. Contrary to what many people think, God actually likes sex. He's a big fan. In fact, one of the first commands in the Bible, he says, be fruitful and multiply. He doesn't just say have sex. He says have lots of sex, have lots of children. And we obviously have followed that command. <laughs> We've stopped following. No, we haven't completely stopped following. We've stopped <laughs> multiplying. Let's put it that way. Erase that part of the podcast. <laughs> sex is one of the greatest gifts of God, my friends. It is one of the greatest gifts of God. Throughout the Bible, we, we see sex actually is being described as a metaphor for communion with God himself. That a husband and wife uniting in that intimate act are picturing, they're, they're giving a metaphor for the communion that a believer has with God and that God has with himself in that intercommunal relationship of the Trinity. Sex is the little M metaphor for the big M metaphor for the thing that's greater, which is God and communion with God. It is a God-sanctioned gift. And so sex, far from being something that we should oppose in the church, it's something that we should encourage and promote, should talk about, just like I am. We should, we should praise it because it is God's gift. And in this particular fellowship, they were saying, no, no, this is wrong. No, this is defiled. No, this, this is worldly. No, this is fleshly. No, this is wrong. And now there's a particular cultural reason for that, which I'm not going to get into this morning. It relates to the ancient teaching of Gnosticism and the ancient teachings of asceticism. And you can read about that if you want. But the point is, is that they were saying something that God said was good. They were calling it bad. And so we need to oppose this error with the truth. The truth is that in the beginning, God called everything that he created good. The second error, then, is forbidding certain foods. Sex and eating, okay? That's what we're talking about this morning. And the same thing happens today. You see, today, you see people, not necessarily even Christians, on, on two sides of the spectrum. You see people that forbid sex. They, they, they put up too many boundaries, and they call it bad and wrong. And then you see people who give in to sex without any boundaries at all and completely rejecting God on the other side. So it's the same thing with food today. You see people forbidding certain foods as being wrong or or politically incorrect or inhumane, and then you see people who, who have no boundaries for food whatsoever, and they're completely oblivious to any kind of moderation in that. It's the same today as it was in that time. But the truth of the matter, both with sex and with food, the test of a gospel-liberated fellowship is this, in our, in our text, verse 3. God created these things to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. The idea that was being taught is the closer you get to God, the farther you stay away from certain things. That's the lie. The truth, and the truth test is this, the closer you get to God, 
the more liberation you have, the more freedom you have to recognize that all of God's created gifts are good. Not everything in the world is good, but all of God's created gifts are good. And so it becomes important then for us to find out what has God created that is good. How am I then to use it in light of his saying that it's good, in light of his creating it as good? One thing that we know for sure that our text tells us as we use these things is that we are to say thank you. Very simple, isn't it? But when God gives a good gift, an appropriate response is to say thank you. So what do many of us do at, at mealtime? Maybe hold hands or maybe not, but we, we, give, we say thanks, we give thanks. And I think this is one reason. It's an ancient Jewish practice of giving thanks over a meal. It's carried on to the Christian tradition, and this text is one reason why it's carried on. Verse 5, for it is made holy by the word of God in prayer. So we give thanks. But we don't just give thanks at meal times. What about giving thanks at other times? for other of God's good gifts. What about giving thanks in prayer for some of these other gifts? For sex. What about husbands and wives praying and giving thanks to God for the gift of sex before they engage in that act? This is a good gift of God. And it's not just sex and meals. It's everything that God has done. Everywhere we see his handiwork, it's an appropriate time to pause and say, Thank you, God. Thank you for these good gifts that you've given to us. Thank you requires faith. You have to trust God to say thank you. You don't get very far in the story when God says it's very good than to discover that it became very bad. And so all around us today, we see not necessarily at first glance the goodness of creation, but without the eyes of faith, it's very easy just to simply see the badness of creation the badness of humanity, even the badness of food and the badness of sex. And some people then, out of that faith, I believe, faithless viewpoint, begin to define their Christian life by everything that they are against. No to this and no to that. No to this and no to that. And God here is saying, thank you, says yes to God's goods gift because it requires faith. Faith. But the work which he began in the garden and which was if you will, temporarily spoiled by our selfishness is being restored and renewed and that all around us are the sparks of his workshop as he's honing and redeeming and refining and repairing all of those things that we in our selfishness have broken and sullied and soiled. And so the eyes of faith see these things and we rejoice in God and we say thank you. So this is the test of truth I want to hasten on finally to my third point, which is the protection. The protection for a gospel-liberated fellowship is prayer. So we know the truth, but how do, we, how do we focus on the truth, and how do we stay on the truth? Well, I've been talking about it already by this idea of prayer. I want to suggest that we need to be a praying people. Not praying in maybe the traditional sense of what you've heard about, a, a, a godly faithful woman like my grandmother who had a prayer journal that was years long and she could point. I think that's wonderful. I haven't arrived at that level of discipline, but it's a goal I have. But I'm talking about ordinary prayer like I did in the beginning here in my pastoral prayer today where we simply say thank you to God 
all the time. Say thank you all the time. That's the protection for a gospel-liberated fellowship. There's something humbling about saying thank you, isn't there? When you say thank you, you admit a couple of things. First of all, you admit, I didn't do this myself. Second of all, I'm blessed by this. I'm better for this than I was without it. And the effect of saying thank you, we teach our children, always say please, always say thank you. What is the effect on a child? When the child says thank you, from the earliest years, he or she learns that he didn't do that himself, but he's better as a result of it. Thank you. So just by saying thank you, we're offering a prayer to God. We're acknowledging the fundamental nature of the world, which is the creature can't save himself, and the creature can't do it without the Creator. Saying thank you, saying thank you in prayer, will protect this church from becoming a church where falsehood thrives. Thank you would be like the, the, uh, the insecticide or maybe the organic stuff that you toss out in your garden that keeps the bugs away. By saying thank you, it keeps pride out. And false teachers thrive on pride. By saying thank you, it keeps selfishness out. Because by definition, you can't say thank you if you're selfish. By saying thank you, it keeps out anger. Because now you're acknowledging that you need another human being, and anger fundamentally seeks to snuff out the life of another human being. So, so thank you and prayers of thanksgiving and a praying people is the best way I believe this text is directing us to protect the freedom of Jesus in this church. My mom likes to bake twice-baked potatoes. Anybody ever had that recipe before? So this, this passage actually is a twice-baked potato passage. Take a look. <laughs> Everything created by God is good, right? So it's holy because God made it. But then look at verse 5. It is made holy, twice-baked, by the word of God in prayer. So here's the dynamic. We have to say thank you to God the first time because he gave it to us, and the second time because we're acknowledging in a statement of faith that we believe that he gave it to us. And he says something basically that says this. When you pray over a meal, the food is different. The food is different. I don't know how, but I have to acknowledge the text says that it is made holy. It is sanctified. I've never seen my potatoes glowing after we said thanks, but there's something about it that's different. The prayer of the righteous man or woman availeth much, we read in James, and here's an example of it. It changes our physical reality by the ordination of God, by his perfect plan from before the foundation of the world, he has ordained prayer to change the world. We are to be a praying people. And at the very smallest level, the most humble level, our prayers promote the gospel freedom that we need to be a family of God. And it changes our world. I'm going to give you a story here of something, a prayer I pray in my house. It's not meant to poke fun at the sin of gluttony, but it is a funny story. We, we do pray twice at our, at our meals, especially at a fancy meal. The first 
you know, when you pull out all the glass dishes and don't use the plastic ones. So the first prayer is what everybody expects. We pray, and Lord, thank God. And often we'll ask one of the kids if they want to pray, and if not, Polly or I will pray. And then after the dishes are being cleared, coffee starts being perked on the, in the coffee maker, and you hear the tinkling of the new dishes, and, the, and the, the pie is being pulled out, or the cake, or whatever the dessert is being offered for that particular meal. I say, hang on, before we eat, let's pray again. Lord, please forgive us for the sins we are about to commit. (laughs) Amen. I like that prayer. I like it because it's funny, first of all. And second of all, I like it because it makes a point. And what's the point? There is nothing sinful about dessert. Nothing whatsoever. Well... Maybe if you eat too many pieces of the pie. But for the most part, and for most people, there is nothing sinful about dessert. God has given us these good gifts. I'm going to return to this idea of this prayer in a minute. But we need to pray at more times than just meal times. Here's how G.K. Chesterton puts it. You say grace before meals? Fine. I say grace before the play and the opera. Grace before the concert and the pantomime. Grace before I open a book? Grace before sketching, grace before painting, grace before swimming, fencing, boxing, walking, playing, and dancing, and grace before I dip the pen in the ink. Here's some applications, three steps for you today. First of all, bring some celebration to this fellowship by sharing something that is uniquely true of you. Here's the idea. In a, in a hidebound, legalistic fellowship, only one kind of person is allowed to be praised. And that person has, a, has set a stereotype for the whole family. And if you don't measure up, and it's true in little families as well, in, in kind of the micro family, not just the church family. If you don't measure up to the oldest brother or the oldest sister, if you don't measure up to, to Uncle Joe or Aunt Janie or whoever, then somehow you're less of a person. In a gospel-liberated fellowship, there is the acknowledgement that every person's unique and individual contributions matter. So share something like that today. And here's an even better tip. Share it with the non-Christian. Here's something that I'm really good at. Did you know that? And see what they say. I believe and I'm convinced that unbelievers are persuaded that Christians don't care about them individually. So by sharing something that's uniquely true of you, that's individually true of you, you open the door to find out what's individually true of them. And you get a chance to say, I love you for being that kind of a person that kind of a unique person created by God. Here's a second application. If you don't pray over meals, start praying over meals. And I know there's that tense moment where you sit down in and out and you got your burger first and your buddy's getting it second and do I wait to pray? Buddy's not a Christian. Do I pray in front of him like this? Excuse me a second, John. Do you do that? I don't do that. I usually pray in my mind in a situation like that. But pray over meals. If you're not in the habit, pray over meals. But then thirdly, don't stop there. Pray over something new this week. I've given you a few suggestions. Choose something that would surprise someone and pray over it. And thank God for it. Because it's part of what will make this church family a gospel-liberated fellowship. Let me conclude. I mentioned dessert. 
And particularly, I'd like to mention chocolate. I love chocolate. <laughs> but everywhere I go, this is what I've noticed. Chocolate is given a name. Chocolate desserts are given names that typically draw from either the devil, from sin, or sex. I'm going to give you a few examples. Chocolate seduction. It all starts there, doesn't it? How about this? Original sin chocolate bars. Then things get really ugly when we progress to triple sin chocolate layer cake, or the ultimate sin chocolate layer cake, and then sin just breaks out and we have Sin City chocolate. And then we meet our enemy himself, the devil's chocolate cake, double devil fudge, both of which lead to the deadly chocolate sin, and last of all, of course, death by chocolate. <laughs> why is it, why is it that chocolate has got such a bad reputation when it's so good? I think it's the incipient, ascetic, otherworldly, nasty, tight, and mean kind of spirituality that says all of God's gifts are not good. And I think we redeem culture when we say chocolate and everything else like that is good. I prefer Lucy Van Pelt's philosophy. She's the character in the Peanuts comic strip. She said, all I really need is love, but a little chocolate now and then doesn't hurt. <laughs> So here's another application. Throw a party in your neighborhood and call it a chocolate party. And get all the devil and sin and whatever chocolate names you can. Or have them bring, make it a potluck. And the only reason that you're having the party is to celebrate God's gift of chocolate. See how many people come. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for this time where we've been able to study your word, to be challenged, encouraged, blessed, refreshed, reminded of your goodness. And our prayer now, Lord, is that you would redeem us from all of those rules and laws that we have bought into that have the effect of throwing a fog and a veil over Jesus and his cross. Lord, we want to be Christians, people of Christ. And let us stop at there at that place. And Lord, may our growth and maturity be characterized by delving deeper and deeper into that simple message that Jesus came to save sinners. And that's the mission of this church. Lord, would you help us? We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.